Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello again, it's Connor Stone here with my co-host, Nick Aurora. Say hi, Nick. Hi, Connor. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I think this is going to be another exciting episode in this series of Fast Radio Bursts. So I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, it's going to be fun to talk about Beetlejuice. But before we get to that, I think uh, there's a bit of space news that we should talk about. So there's there's a couple things to mention right now. First one is the Arecibo telescope looks like it's going to be decommissioned. So for the uninitiated, uh, the Arecibo telescope is this large 300 meter across radio telescope. It's so big, they built it into a natural sinkhole in the mountains of Puerto Rico. And it's been there for about 50 years. Over this long history, it's of course contributed a huge amount to scientific literature, but it's also become a bit of an icon for astronomy. And you you may have even seen this telescope yourself if you watched James Bond Goldeneye. It was one of the uh, prominent scenes was fighting on top of that uh, gantry where the, the telescope receives the signals. Uh, it's been used for all sorts of cool stuff. And actually it has a special functionality where as well as being able to receive radio signals, it can transmit its own radio signals. And so we've actually tried to send out signals with this telescope to aliens out in space, specifically uh, sending a signal towards the M13 uh, globular cluster, because it has a whole bunch of stars all very close together. The Hercules globular cluster, something that we'll talk about in a minute again. Unfortunately, communication to no avail, I might add. A pretty disappointing thing that they didn't reply back. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't gotten a reply, but it'll probably take a few thousand years for our signal to get there anyway. It's true. It is 25,000 light years away from us, so future generations. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, now, over this... 50-year time span, it seems that some of the uh, cables that hold up the telescope have weakened over time. And so a few months ago, a couple of the cables broke loose and smashed into the dish of the radio telescope, which is in principle fixable, but more damage has been seen in the cables since then. And it looks like uh, it's not safe for the crew to go up there and try and fix it for themselves. So there's a good chance that they'll sort of demolish the telescope instead of trying to fix it, which is, which is really sad for the astronomy community, but it's not the only radio telescope out there. There's others like it, for example, the FAST telescope, which similarly is built into um, a bowl in the mountains. Um, so astro- radio astronomy will carry on 
but it'll have lost one of its more iconic telescopes. Yeah, it's it it is um, pretty sad to hear that. I have been seeing on social media where astronomers are actually posting their sort of memorable or memories on with Arecibo. So it's been a pretty cool thing to see how this news has been received by the astronomy community. It was definitely one of the long-standing soldiers in our quest for science, might I say. A very iconic <clears throat> telescope. In more positive news, um, <laughs> there's there was also the recent launch of the SpaceX Crew-1 mission. Uh, back in November 15th, SpaceX uh, launched their first uh, full mission of astronauts to the International Space Station. It's going to last six months with those astronauts up there. And then um, the Crew-1 capsule will take them back down to Earth and complete the mission. So this is, this is SpaceX's first operational mission with humans. They've, of course, been um, supplying the International Space Station with uh, equipment for years now. But after the Demo-2 mission, certifying, taking people into space, this is their first real mission with humans in it, which yeah. is uh, pretty exciting. And it has so far gone off without a hitch. So let's hope it stays that way and everybody makes it back to Earth safely. Fingers crossed. I mean, they will, but well, still, still fingers guaranteed. crossed. Yes, still fingers crossed. Just trying to keep a positive outlook here. <laughs> All right. Um, and perhaps not so much space news as space information. Uh, for those of you who like to look up at the stars, there's a, a few things in the night sky right now that you might want to check out. Um, so if you if you go out as soon as it gets dark, you should be able to see Jupiter and Saturn close to the horizon. Um, even just a small pair of binoculars, you can you can get a pretty good view of the uh, rings of Saturn. It might be a little yeah. a little fuzzy, but you can definitely tell that it's not just a star on the yeah. sky. With Jupiter, um, you can also see um, its moons with just a normal binocular as well, right? Yep. You can see the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Um, those are sort of, the, those are the Galilean moons and they're, yeah. they're also pretty exciting. Um, Mars is up, the moon is up. Um, the, the Pleiades open cluster is visible. That one you can just see with the naked eye and it's sort of a uh, little cluster of blue stars all close together. Uh, if you have a pair of binoculars, you could check out the uh, M13 cluster in Hercules, the same cluster that we sent the radio signal to with the Arecibo telescope. And of relevance to our podcast today, you should also be able to see Betelgeuse in the sky right now. Although um, you might have to wait until eight or nine in order to get a good view of it in the sky. Yeah, so the whole Orion constellation is visible in the winter. So I think this is something very significant for the Canadian sky, winter sky. So yes, Betelgeuse is definitely, along with the Orion Nebula, is one of the more exciting things in sky during the winter, for sure. Yeah, and when in Canada, when you see Betelgeuse or the Orion constellation in the sky, that, that lets you know that winter is coming. 
Doctor Snow or Ice on the Ground. <laughs> My dad. Doctor Astronomers, that's what tells you. <laughs> feats and feats of snow on the ground, but we still need the sky. So if you if you have the opportunity to listen to this podcast while staring up at Beetlejuice, I suggest you do so. And I think now we should get on to some information about Beetlejuice before we talk about the mysterious dimming of the star. Mm, So Nick, could you tell us a little bit about Beetlejuice as a star? Yeah, um, it's it's what we would call a stellar giant, uh, for sure. Um, It is much bigger than the sun. Um, as, As we just pointed out, we can only see it here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, during the winter times, um, it appears red on the sky because it is what we call a red supergiant star. So it's, as the name suggests, it's red in color and it is a supergiant star. So just so our sun is what we would call, let's, let's put some comparison here, shall we? Our sun is what we would call a normal star, a main sequence, as we say, in astronomy star. Um, the defining feature of our sun is that it's fusing hydrogen to form helium and other heavier, heavier elements in the core. The distinction about red supergiants is that they, one, they're big, but they have also sort of stopped fusing hydrogen in their core to make helium, but instead they're now fusing helium to make other heavier elements like um, carbon and oxygen. And so when you look at stars, which have sort of started to do that, um, we define it as a red supergiant. And these kinds of stars are exactly the kinds of stars that produce the carbon that life is made of and oxygen that we breathe. Yeah. If If you take a deep breath, you're probably breathing something that was made in the core of one of these gigantic stars that lived before our time. Yeah, um, it's sort of the old statement that we're all stardust. Um, Everything that we see around us, that we're made of, that we use every day has come from a star some way or the other. And just like this, Beetlejuice will one day imminent. I think that's why Beetlejuice is so exciting for everybody around there is maybe I'm hinting towards the end, but it's supposed to go supernova um, on an astronomical timescale of maybe a hundred thousand years or so. So um, any time now. Any time, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's why Beetlejuice is super interesting to everybody on this planet, I would say. Um, and once it goes supernova, I think it will enrich its environment with carbon and oxygen and other heavier elements that will be the building blocks for future generations of planets in that region. Yeah. All right. So uh, you said that the sun is a normal star, a main right. sequence star, and Betelgeuse is one of these supergiants. Right. So how does how does Betelgeuse compare to the sun in scale? Right. Um, yes, I think brace yourself over here. I'm going to go from the lower comparison scales to more massive comparison scales. Um, the Betelgeuse in mass is about 18 times more massive than the sun. Um, when it comes to just the pure amount of stuff in it. Um, in radius, it is about 760 times bigger. 
And now maybe finally the best thing about Beetlejuice is how bright it is. And compared to the sun, Beetlejuice is a hundred thousand times brighter than the sun. I wanted to pause there to sort of build excitement for sure, because the number is that big. So yes. So it's only 18 times times bigger by by mass, but a hundred thousand times brighter. Yes. And, and why is that? Um, particularly because of the fact that it's, it's so big and therefore the gravity is so strong that it's able to fuse, produce energy at a much faster rate. And that's particularly why it's that bright. Um, another reason is that it is also what we call a variable star. We're going to get to it, um, in a minute, but these are the two reasons one because it's so massive so it can actually generate or use up its fuel much faster therefore generating more energy compared to the sun but also because of the way it lets out energy into space through variations Uh, so if it's a hundred thousand times brighter than the sun it must be a whole lot hotter right you would think that, you would think that but it it turns out it is not Um, Betelgeuse is the, the surface temperature of Betelgeuse is only about 3,600 Kelvin. Kelvin and degrees Celsius at that hot temperatures are about the same. Um, so it's about 3,600 Kelvin, whereas the sun is close to 5,800 Kelvin. Um, Betelgeuse's surface is best described as sort of a red hot vacuum. It's on its surface, it's not really that dense. So it's, it's a lot cooler compared to the sun. But uh, in astronomy, temperature and how much energy you put out don't necessarily always go hand in hand. Um, yeah, well, if, I guess if, if it's got a big enough surface area, it doesn't need to be too hot in order to produce a lot of exactly. light. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's 760 times more massive than the sun. Sorry, larger than the sun. Um, so that's one of the reasons. So, yeah, and it's also a lot younger than, than the sun is, as, as I would say. The sun at this point of time is aged to be about 5 billion years old and Betelgeuse is only aged to be about 8 million years old. So not as much, I would say, uh, when it comes to the age. But I think I pointed this out in previous podcasts as well, but I'll, I'll say this again, the bigger in mass you are, the shorter your lifetime is, that's just because that's how fast you use your fuel to burn as a star. So Betelgeuse being 8 million years is directly a consequence of the fact that it's about 18 times more massive than the sun. So, yeah. Right. So these stars convert their mass into energy. And even though it's 18 times more massive, it's so it's got 18 times the amount of fuel to work with. Exactly. It's burning it up 100,000 times faster. Exactly. So, and that's why they live for much shorter time scale. So the bigger the star, the smaller time scales it will live around. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe before we move any forward, I, I would like to, this is one of the coolest things I found about Betelgeuse. Sort of the basic facts about Betelgeuse, maybe not the dimming part. We're going to get to the dimming part shortly, is how we measure how far away Betelgeuse is from us. That seems to be a an interesting problem in astronomy. I think, Connor, you being a lot more sort of 
with Galaxy Disk, a lot more accustomed to using Galaxy distances, can can sort of speak about how hard it is to measure distances in space, right? Yeah, distance is certainly the largest source of uncertainty in my work studying galaxies that are many, many millions of light years away, um, yeah. often like a hundred million light years away. So I, I deal with these large distances and with them come large uncertainties, but that's true at all sorts of uh, scales for astronomy. Finding distance is just about always the hardest thing for an astronomer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, anytime we quote distances, we're, we're only sure to about 20%, so to say, of, of the distance itself, which, which is an interesting thing. So there has been quite a bit of argument going back almost 100 years when it comes to how far away Betelgeuse is um, from us. It's in the constellation Orion. And initially going back to about 1920s, um, using just observations of Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse's light, it was determined that it is 1300 light years away from us. Now, as I said, it was done in 1920s, exactly a hundred years ago from today. And maybe the equipment back then wasn't the best of equipment being used. Um, and so, but in fact, people did not come back to Betelgeuse. They agreed to 1300 year light year, 1300 years, like 1300 light years, and just stayed with it for the next 70 odd years. Um, they were okay with Betelgeuse being um, 1300 light years away. And then came Hipparchos um, as, as a satellite. So Hipparchos is the satellite that essentially just looks at the motions of stars in the sky, minute motions like um, in the sky and, and measures distances to it. And in the first data release of Hipparchos found that um, in around 1991, it found that Betelgeuse was only 300 light years away from us. So somehow we shaved down a thousand light years of distance. And once again, Connor, I, I see you smiling. People can't see this, but this is sort of the life of an astronomer when it comes to measuring distances, right? Um, ah, however, the mystery wasn't fixed yet. Um, it turned out two years later that they had made calculation errors. Um, so in 1993, they figured out some more calculation errors and that added another 300 light years to the old 330 light years and updating Betelgeuse's distance to 650 light years away from us. Um, <laughs> this has been, and this kept on going. So people again used Hipparcos measurements close to the 2000s and found that even that 650 light years was, was incorrect. And newer measurements through Hipparchos showed that it was only 427 light years away from us. So given this variation in distances specifically through Hipparchos, um, I, think, I think astronomers got fed up with it and finally used a land-based telescope. So the VLA, the Very Large Array um, <clears throat> in the Atacama Desert Oh no, Very Large Array is in New Mexico rather. Um, so in New Mexico in 2008, to find out uh, that Betelgeuse's 
distance was 427, sorry, 724 light years. Um, however, so they have no idea. Yeah, this, to an extent. Is, I, yes. So this number was from 300 to 1300. <laughs> exactly. So this was 1300. Uh, this was in 2008. So 12 years ago. But recently, just this year, um, the Coriolis satellite was sort of put on this task to measure, measure distance to Betelgeuse. And it found that Alma's distance turned out to be wrong once again. <laughs> and so the new updated distance for Betelgeuse is 548 light years away from us. But that is as of 2020. So Yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> Yeah, um, Gaia is also trying to do this. So Gaia is sort of the, what's the word? The next generation Hipparchos satellite. So we'll see whether Gaia confirms um, Betelgeuse's distance or not. But at this point of time, if, if you look up Betelgeuse online, you'll see different kinds of distance measurements. Some people will say it's 720 light years from the VLA measurements and other people will say it's 550. So uh, maybe for this podcast, we'll stick with the most recent um, distance to Betelgeuse and say it's 550 light years away from us and not 700 as the traditional modern astronomy has been in that. So I think that's quite the history of distances here. And, and what is it that makes the distance to Betelgeuse so hard to calculate? I think part of the reason is um, just how fickle the nature of Hipparchos as an instrument was. It was trying to do parallax, so basically measure motions of stars in the sky. And given the fact that during the summer, um, Betelgeuse essentially just goes behind the sun, it's very hard to observe it during that time of the year. And so I think not finding the correct time to observe it um, was one of the basic problems with the distances um, yes so yeah that's I think that was one of the cool things when it comes to Betelgeuse um, is that we have basically no idea how far away it is from us at this point 550 light years but as you said a few minutes ago we'll see whether that will stick or not so if I come back to you in two years and say yeah it's not actually 550 light years but actually 700 again don't be surprised because this is a very common thing in astronomy. Yeah, this is the story of many stars and galaxies in astronomy. Yeah. There's a, a range of distance measurements, different techniques, different groups. It's very hard to pin down. But you would assume that Betelgeuse just being such a famous star and it being a star, not a galaxy, you would have sort of robust measurements on how far away it is. And this kind of shows over the last hundred years, how hard, even for stars, it is for us to measure distances. So yeah, I think this was a pretty cool thing to find with Betelgeuse. So I think we'll go to the break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the mysterious dimming. Hello, I am just stopping by to quickly let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and our website. Links for all of these are in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention 
some of the other great resources out there. In the podcast description, you will find links to the McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap program. These are all excellent programs to teach you more about the universe. With that, let's get back to this fascinating and mysterious dimming giant. And welcome back. So I understand that there's uh, one more exciting thing about Beetlejuice to talk about before we move on to the mysterious dimming. Could you tell us about the variability of Beetlejuice? Yeah. Um, so Beetlejuice is, is, is a special kind of star. It, it is not like our sun in, in the sense that its brightness varies. So if you were to observe Beetlejuice over a period of four to five months, you'll see that how bright it appears in the sky changes. Now, it's not only how bright it appears in the sky that changes, it's actually truly going through some mysterious process, let's call them mysterious from for now, for right now, that, that are going on within Betelgeuse that change how much energy it's putting out into the sky. And these kinds of stars are, caught, are, are put in a special class because they're very important for us to study and they're called variable stars. These variable stars allow us to do multiple different things one is, as we talked for at length about distances, variable stars allow us to measure distances to stars. So they're very, very important. In fact, the way we know Andromeda galaxy's distance to, to us is because of a variable star. And so that's one of the more important things. But along the lines of physics, these variable stars allow us to study the lifetime of a star basically what happens towards the end age. Generally, when you see these variable stars in the sky, they are gone, done through their main sequence part or majority part of their life and are moving towards the end of their life. And so that's the case with Betelgeuse for sure. So when it comes to studying variable stars, there are two kinds of variable stars in the sky. One of them, as I mentioned, are called intrinsic variable stars where something special is going on within the star itself that modifies over a period of time how much energy it puts out. But there's also extrinsic, extrinsic variable stars. Um, stars, just like human beings, don't like to be alone, I would say. They like to be in cosmic love stories, as I call it, in front of people. So they, they come with companions. And sometimes the companion will shadow a star or come in front of a star. It's changing its brightness. And that brightness, that change in brightness will come off and we will register that. And those are called extrinsic um, variable stars where something external to the star is changing its brightness on the sky. Um, Betelgeuse as a star is an intrinsic variable star, which means there's something going on inside Betelgeuse. Specifically, basically, it is not able to expel energy out into the into space as efficiently now. So what is happening is, is that Betelgeuse is churning up fuel quite at the same rate at, at, as it usually would, but it's not able to push it out. So Betelgeuse swells up, but it can only swell up so much after which it has to release that energy. And once it releases that energy, it swells back down. And so, it's almost like a breathing um, analogy that you can think of with our lungs where 
it holds in energy and swells up and then releases energy and goes back down. So this of course happens over a time scale. Um, and uh, this particular time scale with the star Betelgeuse is interesting because it's, it's a class of variable stars that we call semi-regular variable stars where it's swelling up and going back down on a semi-regular basis of, of, of a period of about six years is the big one. But there are two more periods that people, astronomers specifically have noticed with Betelgeuse. One of them is close to 425 days um, where Betelgeuse will change its brightness over that course of time. And the third one, which is not maybe as important and one cannot see this um, just by naked eye is over the course of 100 to 180 days. Now these are rough numbers. So once again, as I said, it's a semi-regular variable star. So sometimes it does special things and then we have to go back and revise these numbers again. But I see, and with three different um, pulsation periods, yeah. how, how does that work? Do they, um, do they overlap on top of each other? Um, sometimes that can happen. Sometimes these uh, three different pulsation periods can overlap on top of each other, but generally they're not synced up together. So they're asynced and they're happening at different times, uh, different times, but also at different time scales. Now, the more interesting thing, maybe this is a homework to our listeners out there and Connor, maybe to, to you as well, is specifically the, the 425 days period you can actually notice it with your naked eye. So you can go out tonight and if it's a clear sky, notice Betelgeuse uh, and compare it uh, to its neighboring stars in the Orion constellation, specifically Rigel and Bellatrix, which by the way, as a digression are also variable stars, but maybe not on the same time scale. So they stay stable for a much longer time. And go back again in a few days or a week and notice how bright it is compared to those two stars and do it maybe for the whole winter period, winter months, and you will see a change in how bright Betelgeuse appears to you. So yeah. And if you have a it. nice camera, maybe try and take some pictures along the way and yeah. see if you can compare them side by side. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in that way, you can prove to yourself as a backyard astronomy project that Betelgeuse Indies is, is a variable star for sure. Yeah. Now, here are some cool facts about Betelgeuse's variability is how big and small it gets. So as we pointed out, Betelgeuse is already a lot bigger and more massive than the sun. So in its smallest size, Betelgeuse will, if we were to place it at the center of our solar system where the sun is, so replace it with Betelgeuse, it would go all the way to Mars in its smallest size. So it's that big. But throughout its variability period, it can actually balloon up to where Jupiter is. So these are some starking numbers comparing to how big Betelgeuse is. So that's truly gargantuan. I mean, it is 18 times more massive than our yeah. sun, but that is that is such a huge area. <laughs> yep. It must be, its, its outer envelopes must be very thin. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so if I you, don't know. If you did replace the sun with Betelgeuse, I imagine Mars and Jupiter would be able to continue in their orbits almost unimpeded. 
Yeah, to an extent. Um, I think I mentioned this before, but the outer layers of Betelgeuse are described as maybe red hot vacuum. Um, you feel some temperature heat, but there's not enough particles for you to really harm you. So yeah, you're right. If we were to do the, maybe we can do a calculation with in lines with this, but we we could be able to put Mars and Jupiter there and they will be able to survive. But that's for a later time, I would say. All right, very cool. So I think that covers all of the uh, basics that we wanted to know about Betelgeuse. So now we get to talk about the topic of the hour, which is the, the dimming of Betelgeuse. So what happened to Betelgeuse? Why did it get dim? Um, can, you, can you explain this for us, Nick? Yeah, sure. So people kept observing Betelgeuse, just like I have given this homework to our podcast listeners. Um, around late December 2019, early January 2020, people noticed Beetlejuice getting record dim. So it was expected to get dim, but it actually got to record-breaking uh, dimness, if I faintness, if I call it. So astronomers have dubbed it the great fainting event in Beetlejuice's lifetime. It was faint enough that on its normal time, normal brightness, Beetlejuice is one of the top 10 brightest stars in the sky. But because of this dimming event, it went outside of the top 30 brightest stars in the sky. And so this was a quite interesting phenomena, especially the record-breaking light coming out of it, the dimness. Um, Betelgeuse has gotten close to this record-breaking dimness before in the past as well. So there have been three, at least three events all going all the way back to 1979, 1988, and 2008 where Betelgeuse got close to this record-breaking number that was observed in 2020. And so if we've seen three different large dimming events in the past, right. yeah. uh, how long have we been observing Betelgeuse in order to see that? Well, that's a good point, Connor. Um, as I think this, you can, you can sort of hit this, but going back to our dis distance measurement conversation, Betelgeuse has been observed all the way back to last hundred years. Um, we've been observing, of course, Betelgeuse from before, but measurements have been there since the last hundred years or so. so. So to say solid measurements have been there since the last hundred years or so to notice how dim and the variability in Betelgeuse's brightnesses over time. So that's why we can go back and say, well, it came close to what it went down to in 2020 in back in 1979, 1988. So there might have been um, more dimming events, not maybe as dim as what Betelgeuse got, even in these last three 1979 events or 2008 event, or even in the 2020 event, but these were definitely some record-breaking dimness in Betelgeuse's lifetime, 100-year lifetime, observing lifetime, might I say. All right, so likely Betelgeuse has been doing this sort of thing for a long time. Yes. And yeah. we're just able to detect it now and notice it. Yeah, so likely, so it's, Betelgeuse has sort of been a red supergiant. Estimates go to about 200 to 500,000 years. So I would say it's been a variable star, at least for that long, since the time it left the main sequence or the normal hydrogen burning part of its life. 
and it's become a variable star since then. So it's probably been variating its brightness for the last 500,000 light years, but we've only been able to observe it nicely and properly now. So to All say. right. So after an exciting little time around January 2020, Betelgeuse came back to normal and everything was fine, right? Not quite, I would say. Um, yes, it came back to normal around February, sorry, end of February, mid-March, and it went back to, it nor it back to its normal brightness around April 2020, which is what was expected. And so it was supposed to stay there, if not get a little bit more brighter over the course of the next few months. But in July 2020, it started to dim again. Now, as I pointed out, Betelgeuse is a semi-regular variable star, which means that we don't completely understand its variations in brightness. So this came also as surprising. However, that said, while it was dimming, it sort of went behind the sun, so we could not observe it any further. Betelgeuse is an interesting star in the sense when it comes to observing, because you can only observe it during winter and fall times. And during the summer or the peak of the summer, it's actually super close to the sun, so there are not many satellites that, that can actually observe it. Um, Sounds like we need a telescope on the other side of the sun. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I don't know whether I am not aware of any current projects that will do that, but yes, that would be very nice, especially when it comes to understanding Betelgeuse and maybe getting an accurate distance on it. However, that said, people have sort of theorized, or scientists rather, have theorized as to what caused the December 2020 dimming event so to say. And one of the sort of obvious um, factor could be the fact that, remember I told you Betelgeuse has three periods earlier on in its variation of its brightness, and it could be possible that two of the three dominant periods, which are 425 days and six years, actually just overlapped here, and that caused the dimming to go down to record-breaking numbers. Um, that's sort of the more, that is what is the more obvious thing. But as I pointed out, Betelgeuse is a hotly observed star in the astron astronomical community. And so earlier observations of Betelgeuse through the Hubble Space Telescope in the time frame of about September 2019 to November 2019 showed some energetic sparks from Betelgeuse. Um, astronomers are calling it Betelgeuse sneezing, so to say, where <laughs> the southern part of Betelgeuse actually expelled energetic material into space. Um, and this was seen in ultraviolet light when the Hubble Space Telescope looked at it. And so what scientists think is what happened was around December 2019, January 2020, this material that was ejected, super hot material that was ejected by Betelgeuse cooled down and essentially blocked some of the light causing the extra dimming that we saw in January, 2020. So it could be just all of these three things coinciding on top of each other just by chance for us to see Betelgeuse dimming that one that much. So from what I know about the sun's solar cycle, yeah, when it gets into its um period of low activity where there's fewer sunspots 
There's also fewer flares. Yes. But it seems like this is almost the opposite for Beetlejuice. It was in it was in the bottom of its yes. sort of dim variable phase. Right. But then it started ejecting material. Is this yeah. is this normal for Beetlejuice? No. Uh, actually, it's the, it's not normal for any stars. This 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 in the time period of September 2019 to November 2019, this did come as a surprise to astronomers. Um, it it might have just and it was funny that it only happened, not funny as in haha funny, but it was funny as in as as a mysterious funny that it only happened in the southern part of Betelgeuse's sphere. And so scientists just think that this is just Betelgeuse being odd or behaving funkily at the end times of its life. That's why it caught the news, right? People thought that it's dimming because it's about to go supernovae. It's it's imminent that Betelgeuse will go supernova over the next 100,000 years, which in astronomy is a flash. Um, but we did not expect it to go supernova just yet and that's what caused the news as well it'd be pretty exciting when it does go supernova okay so if beetlejuice did go supernova and created this bright uh image in the sky how how bright would it be and how long would it last yeah um so we've seen this with supernovas once a different kind of supernovae but once supernovas do happen they're pretty bright but they do decline very quickly. In, in, in terms of days, Betelgeuse might be visible once it goes supernova for about a couple months, maybe three months. And it's gonna be as bright as the full moon, essentially. So it's gonna be, if this happens during the winter, that has to be said out loud over here because if it happens during the summer, we will have no clue. In the coming winter, it won't be there, but we will have no clue of if it happened during the summer. But if it happened during the winter, um, it will be as bright as full moon, as the full moon. And it's going to stay like that for about 100 days, three three months or so. Yeah. Wow, that's a really long time. Yeah. So everyone, so everyone will get a chance to see it then. Exactly, yeah. And it's unlike the full moon, which happens maybe once every 15 days, this is going to be like this. And so this is going to be scientifically a good time for if we are there. As I said, it might happen anytime between tomorrow and the next 100,000 years. So <laughs> if we are there, so to say, it will be a good time for everybody to see, including scientists who will be able to see a supernova and study it for the first time. Yeah. Well, it'd be great to have such a nearby example, but exactly. I imagine it'd be so bright that a lot of telescopes actually wouldn't be able to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that could be the possibility, I think, but there, there are always ways around it to study it, definitely. All right, so it sounds like a supernova in Betelgeuse would be a very exciting event, yeah. but perhaps not really something we were really expecting from this dimming event, considering we've seen others that are sort of somewhat like it. But yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, this event was a little little hyped in the media, but certainly interesting from an astronomy perspective. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely, you're 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 right in saying that. We we did not expect to see Betelgeuse go supernova for sure, but maybe 
given the hype and given the study of the Beetlejuice, um, we, we saw the sneeze, which was an interesting feature in Beetlejuice's lifetime. And further studies of this are, are definitely gonna shed some more light on sort of stars as they go into their older age or towards the end of their lifetime, which still is a point, uh, an active area of study for, for astronomers. So this was definitely interesting in that sense that we got to see this and got to study it for sure. Well, I think that covers everything about the dimming giant Betelgeuse and the exciting possibility of a nearby supernova. That's all for us today. We'll see you on the next episode of Fast Radio Bursts. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.